Well, good morning, church. As Jeff mentioned, we are back in the book of John. Um, in, in some ways, uh, I would say I'm, I'm excited to be back in the book of John, but I, I have to admit that I really did enjoy our, our summer of Psalms, and, and I think uh, God used the Psalms this summer uh, for His good purposes and encouraging us uh, in the way that we need to be encouraged, so I'm grateful for that. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9, and as I as you're aware, we have not been here for a while, and I just wanted to, to point out a few things. I'm not going to walk through the first eight chapters and try to bring us up to speed that way, but, but there are a, a few things that, that I want to remind us of before we get into our passage. And, and one is that there is a, a growing hostility towards Christ. We see that throughout the book of John. We see this growing hostility. We know that eventually, probably about five months from, from now in, in, in chapter 9, uh, you know, we're, we're going to see Christ go to the cross. There's a growing hostility. And, and, but we, we see this growing hostility from the, really the very beginning. In the prologue in, in John chapter 1, verse 9 through 12, Jesus says, or John says this, the true light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. He was the creator. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we see right from the beginning, the prologue tells us that there is going to be this this hostility between uh, Christ and his followers and those who reject him. Another thing that we've been seeing as we've been moving through the Gospel of John are the signs. We know that there are are seven signs, and these these signs are pointing to Christ as the Messiah. These seven signs are the changing of water into wine, the the healing of of the official son, the healing of the paralytic, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water. Now we're going to be looking uh, today at the healing of the man born blind. And then the last sign will be the raising of Lazarus. And every one of these signs, we have to understand, is not for us to just look at it to see this great, wonderful thing. It's to point to Jesus Christ. It's to point to Him and who He is as the Messiah of Israel, that He has come to save His people. And thirdly, just as a reminder, I want to look at the purpose of John. We know that, that Jesus did many other signs, John says, but He says this, in John chapter 20, verse 31, that these things, these things that, that I wrote down, he did many other signs which are not written, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So our passage today is about that. It's pointing to, to who Christ is. It's, 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 it's pointing to him as the Messiah, because when he, when he heals this man who's born blind, it's a sign that points to him as the Christ, the Son of God, that you might believe in him and that you may, may have life in his name. So I just wanted to touch on those things. But let's go ahead and read now John chapter 9, verses 1 through 16. This is the word of God. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, He spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus. 
made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and Lord, we just thank you for your word and Lord, how it instructs us, how it points us to Jesus Christ. And, and Lord, I pray that as I preach your word, Lord, that you would use me as an instrument of, for your purposes, Lord, that, that we might be encouraged to follow Christ, to, to seek him with all our hearts and with all our minds and with all our souls and with, with all our strength. Father, if any be here that are spiritually blind, we pray that you would open up their eyes to the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the Savior, and that by putting their faith in his death and resurrection, Lord, they might have life and have it to the full. Lord, we thank you again for uh, this narrative in the, in the gospel of John that, that gives us and instructs us in who Jesus was and in pointing to him. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, back in 1998, I was working at Nissan Motor Corporation, and I had just become a Christian. And many of the people that I worked with knew me before I was a Christian. They knew my wild side. They knew the things that I used to do. They, they, they watched me, and, and, and then they watched me change. And one of the things that, that I would do is I would come, and I would, I would bring my Bible uh, to work with me, and I would sit in the break room, and I would read, and I would, I would pray that God would give me an opportunity to share the gospel with some of my coworkers. And this one day, I was sitting there with one of my coworkers, and as I read, he asked me, he said, he said, what are you reading? And I, I said, well, let me just read it to you. And I, I remember reading it to him, and, and as I read, I thought, this is pretty a clear passage. He, he should understand this. And he said, I, I, don't, I don't understand that. And I thought, well, well, you don't understand. Why not? And I, so I tried to explain it to him, and, and, and I don't know, I was, a, I was a new Christian, so I thought, well, let me... Let me read this other passage to him. And it was out of John chapter 12. And it says this, it says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. I'm trying to get him to believe. I'm trying to instruct him. And they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. And I tried to explain this to him, that he couldn't believe because God had to open up his heart. And he says, I don't understand that either. <laughs> and therein lies the problem. I'm talking to a blind man, spiritually blind man, and I'm talking to him about spiritual truth. Something has to happen. It's like, it's like talking to a, a, a blind man, a, a physically blind man, and showing him a picture and saying, look at this. Don't, why can't you understand this? No. Paul will say in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, the natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are a folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Oh, this coworker of mine, I, I, I'm trying to, and, and obviously what I have to do is pray, and I, I pray that, that Jesus Christ would open up his blind eyes to see the truth of the gospel. Oh, and in our passage there, there is a blind man. But let me tell you, in our passage, there is, is more than one blind man in this passage. And we see that in, in, in the Pharisees. And we'll see that over the next couple of weeks as we go through chapter 9. But first of all, we do see this. The first point is the man's condition. And we see this in, in verse 1. It says, as he passed by, he, meaning Jesus, saw the man blind from birth. Now, we don't know exactly when this occurred. It could have happened. We know back in chapter 8, Jesus has just left the temple. They were going to stone him, and he, he hides himself. 
Some would say that he's probably near the temple still because that's where they would bring uh, people to beg for food because they would bring their alms to the temple. I, I kind of believe that it, wasn't, it was away from the temple where, near where this man lives because we see that his neighbors, his neighbors see him and they know he's been begging there for all these years and so it could be there. But the one thing that, that we have to know is that as a, a blind man in this culture, he had to beg. Now, he didn't have uh, the social, social security department. He didn't have the, we didn't have the department of rehabilitation. We, he didn't have uh, disability insurance. But he had to beg, and, and he did this day in and day out. And, and the truth is, throughout history, we've had people who have had ailments like this, people that have been born blind, people that have disease, people that, that have deformities. And we can often ask ourselves, why do these things happen? Why did this happen to this, this child? Because he's a man now, but, but at one time he was a child and he was, he was born blind. And sometimes we have children with illnesses and we have husbands or wives with illnesses. And we have parents with illnesses. And I was just thinking about my own family and we have experienced different things in our family. We, we tragically had the death of my my nephew at the age of 12, my other nephew, his brother had lymphoma at an early age. He survived that, but the treatment for lymphoma ended up causing him later to have leukemia. Another nephew had a, had a type of meningitis. And, and we think, why, why? I remember my young, youngest son, Seth, when he was a little boy, he, his legs were, were crooked and and so we had, to, we had to have casts put on him to straighten him out. And he, you know, just as a little baby, he's crawling around with these little casts on. And I remember him, he, he couldn't even walk yet, but he would hold himself up. And the casts were bent a certain way, and he had to hold them. And, and we ask ourselves, why? Why would, why would this happen? And we see this with the man who is born, born blind, don't we? The disciples, they have that same question, don't they? Which brings us to our second point, the disciples' question. What do they ask? Verse 2, and the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? But I think that the disciples are assuming more than the Bible teaches. They're assuming more than the Bible teaches. That They're assuming that every disease or, or deformity or death has a direct correlation to a, a specific sin. And this was a common assumption in the, the first century Jewish community because it was a belief held by many of the rabbis. In fact, Leon Morris quotes one rabbi. He says this, he says, There is no death without sin, and there is no suffering without iniquity. And that was a, a common belief, and we tend to actually, I think, believe the same thing at times. We go through something, we're sick, and we immediately think, what did I do? What did I do to deserve this? How? And then we think, how can I get better? Was there anything that I need to repent of in order to get better? And, and, but we have to understand that just because some sin may lead to a sickness, not every sin leads to a sickness. Now, there, this type of thing is exactly what what Job's friends said to him in Job chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Job's friend says this, Remember, who that was innocent ever, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And, and what they're saying to Job at this point is, Job, clearly your suffering, what you're going through is because of your sin. And when we think of Job's sin or Job's suffering, it wasn't just his physical suffering, was it? I mean, Job had lost his family. His, his children had all perished. And so what they're saying to Job is, Job, your sin or your children's sin caused their suffering. Let me just encourage you, if, if you know somebody that has a loved one that's been lost, don't don't go and tell them it's because of your sin. 
One thing is we don't know that. Clearly, we know that some sin has its consequences. I mean, you can do things that could bring about the tragic death of somebody else. You could cause an accident and cause the death of somebody else. Most, those things are true, and, and we can actually sin and bring about God's discipline on us. That's true. You know, Hebrews 12 tells us, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you're reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. So we know that discipline can happen, and, and there can be th- direct, uh, a direct relationship or consequences to sin. And we see that really throughout the Bible. We see it with Adam and Eve in the very beginning. There was a consequence to Adam and Eve's sin. We see it in Miriam's rebellion when, when she was struck with leprosy in Numbers chapter 12. We see it in, with Ananias and Sapphira when they were struck dead for lying in Acts chapter 5. We see Jesus talking to the, the paralytic that he healed in John chapter 5 verse 14, and he says, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So, so I think Jesus is possibly making a connection between this man's sin and what he was going through. And then we also know that when members of the, the church in Corinth were, were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, Paul would write, that is why many of you are weak and ill and, and some have died. And so lest we think that we can just go on sinning, that there may not be any consequences, let us think otherwise. There can be. In fact, sin often has a, a, a ramification that goes down and it moves far away from us when we sin. It touches people around us. But we also need to be reminded that there are instances in the Bible where, where people are, are sick, like the Apostle Paul who had a thorn in the flesh. It's not necessarily because of sin. And we, so we know that it's not necessarily because of sin. But we know that that can be a cause. But in, in this case, in this, this case of this man born blind, in verse 2, it says, the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus' response is this, neither. Neither. There was a greater purpose. There was the Father's purpose, which brings us to our, our third point. Verse 3, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, the Father had a, a purpose in this man's suffering. It wasn't because of his sin. It wasn't because of his, his parents' sin. It wasn't simply because of this random mutation that he might have gone through after he was conceived. Yes, that might have been a, a physical cause. We, we don't know what caused this. It could have been that. But, but God has a greater purpose in this man's blindness. And so Jesus gives us the reason, and he says in verse 3, that, but that, or what, in order that, or for this reason that, the works of God might di- be displayed in him. And notice this, that it's not, just, it's not just the work of God. It's not just this one work that Jesus does in, in healing this blind man. No, it's that the works, plural, the works of God might be displayed in him. It is, it is more than a physical healing. It is more than even a spiritual healing in this man. No, this man was was on display for all to see, that all would come to an understanding of of their condition, that they were spiritually blind and they needed to have spiritual sight restored to them. Now, it had that effect on some of them. In fact, look down just at, at verse 40. says this, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? See, some of the Pharisees hear and see what is going on, and they hear Jesus talking, and therefore they, they ask this question, are we also blind? That was, a, it's in this, this healing's purpose. It was, yes, it was he, to heal this blind man. Yes, it was to bring him to Christ, but, but it had a greater impact that, that God wanted to be glorified through. Well, there was a purpose in it, and it wasn't just God looking down. He wasn't just looking down and, and making, trying to make a, a bad situation better. You know, one pastor said this, it wasn't just that he was 
uh, turning lemons into lemonade. No, it was more than that. No, it goes deeper, and we have to understand that it goes in, into God's sovereign plan for all things. And this is the similar case in, in the book of Genesis with the story of Joseph and his brothers. We know that jo Joseph's brothers sold Joseph into to slavery, and, and they, they're there, and they have, to, they have to go down to Egypt, and they, they're there, and eventually Jacob, their father, dies. And these brothers are worried that Joseph is going to be angry with them and he's going to punish them. Joseph knows this and he says in chapter 50, verse 20 in Genesis, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. See, Joseph sees the sovereignty of God and and what these brothers had done to him. He tells them, fear not, because Joseph understands that everything that happens in his life is under the sovereign work of God, and he can trust God. You know, I, one of my favorite movies, many of you know this, and if you like science fiction, <laughs> I recommend it to you, but it's the, the movie Signs by Mel Gibson. And the reason I like Signs by Mel Gibson is because I like, I like science fiction and I like theology. If you've never seen the movie, you probably never thought that the, book of, or the movie Signs has theology in it, but it actually has some pretty good theology in it. I wouldn't recommend getting my theology from the movie Signs or Mel Gibson, <laughs> let me just say that. But what, I, what you have in that movie that I, that I like so much is that in, in a tragic situation, in this case, the death of his wife. She gets killed. She's there. You know, she's there. He finally gets to her. She's in her final moments, and she says this. She says, see. She tells him to see. Just to let you know, this man was a pastor. She dies. He basically walks away from the faith, says nothing. I'm never going to worship God again. I'm never going to pray again. I'm done with that. He's angry, he's angry, and he... But as this movie plays out, what you see in, in all these things in this movie is there's the car accident is not by chance. You see the, the son he has, he has asthma, and the asthma is, is not by chance. There's the daughter, and she has a phobia of, 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 of the water she drinks, and it's, you, you see later that it's not by chance. It's all these things are under the sovereign hand of God, and finally, in the end of the movie, he sees. He sees that all these things are under the sovereign hand of God. As I said, I'm not talking to us about getting our theology from, from this movie, but, but one thing I think that we fail at as Christians is seeing God's sovereign hand in our everyday life. Do we see God in the midst of our trials? Do we see God in the midst of our blessings? Do we recognize Him and acknowledge Him in all of our ways so that He would make our paths straight? No, I think often we, we don't. And as I said, this is, this is just one of the, the many signs, and it's, it's, pointing, it's pointing to Jesus. And do we see these things in our lives and, and say, these things are going to help me point me to Jesus, that I might draw near to Him, that I might trust Him in the midst of, of this suffering that I'm going to. I like what F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary said about this passage, and, and he says two things, and I think they're both helpful. He says this, this does not mean that God deliberately caused the child to be born blind in order that after many years His glory should be displayed in the removal of the blindness. To think so again would be an aspersion on the character of God. But he says this, it does not mean that God overruled, but it does mean that God overruled the disaster of a child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and others, seeing the work of God, might turn to the true light of the world. See, this, this man who, who grew up as a child and was suffering from this blindness, God was using it for, for His goodness and his, 
his purpose. It was a sign that points to something else. It's a miracle that elevates the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Then we move to verses 4 and 5, and it says, We must work. Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He's not saying that he's going to be ceasing to be the light of the world. He's saying that while he is in the world, his light shines the brightest. Brothers and sisters, we do not know how much time we have left. We don't know how much time we have left. But look what Jesus says. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me. He says, not I, but but we, and he's, he's speaking of his disciples, but also by extension to us. And what he's saying is that he knew that his death was coming in, in just a few months, and he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And it doesn't mean he ceases to be the light of the world. It just means that he has work to do in these next five months, and he wants his disciples to know, as long as it is day, as long as they are living, that they need to be lights themselves. Um, Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We don't know. We don't know what tomorrow holds. No, brothers and sisters, what are we, we doing with our time? And I was, I was encouraged by a, a brother recently and one of the things I was recognizing really in my life is that I was putting things off, procrastinating. I mean, things like, you know, leaving, you know, starting my Bible reading plan. I'll start it when? On Monday. When will I start my diet? On Monday. When it doesn't go this well, I do it what? Next Monday. No, there were things in my life, and you know, when will, when will I spend time with the Lord on Monday? When will I pray with my wife on Monday? When will I share the gospel with my coworkers on Monday? No. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know if we even have tomorrow. We need to, and me too, I need to stop procrastinating. We don't have much time. We need to stop wasting our time. We need to invest our time wisely for the days are evil. We need to invest our time in our families and in in our friends and in our church and and the people we love. Many of you may have heard this, this quote, but it's out of a book by John Piper. It's in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. And John Piper writes this, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider this story from February 1998 Reader's Digest. A couple took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells goes on, picture them before Christ at the, dra- the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That's a tragedy. It goes on, God, or he goes on, God created us to live with a single passion, to joyfully display his supreme excellence in all the spheres of life. The wasted life is the life without this passion. I love that. Let me read that again. God created us to live with a single passion to joyfully display His supreme excellence in all the spheres of life. The wasted life is, is a life without this passion. God calls us to pray and think, think and dream and plan and work, not to be made much of, but to make much of Him in every part of our lives. And that's That's thinking about Him. That's realizing that every instance of our lives is to to be done and to be acted upon for the glory of God, that we might point people to Jesus Christ. 
And what an, an incredible thing to, to work alongside the one who has the, the power to give sight to the blind. I mean, we have a great healer and savior that wants to give life, and yet we, we often lack the desire just to speak the simple truths about what God has done in our lives. No, he, he has the power to give sight to the blind, and, and He does so by giving this man physical sight, but more importantly, He's going to, to give this man spiritual sight. He says, I am the light of the world, and then He proves it by giving sight to this man. And that's where we see in our fourth, fourth point, the Son's power. Verse 6 says, having said these things, having said that I am the light of the world, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and came back sing. Again, we have a, another amazing miracle of Jesus Christ. And we're we remember John the Baptist when he began to question whether Jesus was the Messiah or if he should be looking for somebody else. This is exactly the thing that he, he points to, you know, that, that Jesus is the Messiah. Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6, this is what Isaiah said, "'Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy.'" And like so many others, when we when we read this account, we kind, of, we kind of look at it and we think, Jesus has the power to do it any way He wants to, doesn't He? He has the, the power to speak things into existence. He's the creator of all things. And yet, He spits in the mud. He takes that, that dirt and He makes it into mud and He places it on the man's eyes and we say, why? <laughs> why? Why? Why spit? <laughs> why clay? Why wash? Why Siloam? Why does he do all these things? And you know, I was reading all these commentaries, and, and there were a lot of different thoughts about this. And, and I, was, I was trying to think how I would walk through these different thoughts with you, and, and I came across this, and this is, this is from... John MacArthur, and I think, I think he does a good job of just kind of bringing these all together. And he says this, people say, well, why did he do that? One guy said, to make use of the healing quality of saliva. <laughs> MacArthur says, really? That's a stretch. Another commenta commentator said, to make him even more blind. You can't be more blind than totally blind. I thought about this, it sounds like the Princess Bride. Wesley was what? Mostly dead. <laughs> no, MacArthur goes on, piling mud on the eyes that don't function, don't make you more blind. You can't be more blind than totally blind. Not a good perception, MacArthur says. Another writer said, to symbolize that man is made from dirt. Don't see the connection. Another said, to give the eye's time to heal. Jesus didn't need to have for this man's eyes time to heal. MacArthur says, those are silly. Why did he use this method? This is MacArthur. Why did he use this method? I have no idea. Furthermore, I couldn't care less. <laughs> we don't know. And, and I agree, uh, Leon Morris again says, Jesus performed his cures with sovereign hand, and he cannot be limited by rules of procedure. He healed how he willed. No, Jesus can do anything he wants. He, he did so the way he wanted to, and whatever he did was to, to bring his, uh, him, his own glory and, and to bring people to himself. And he did so by the power of God. Sometimes he spit, sometimes he touched, and sometimes he spoke. But I don't think there are there's nothing significant about this, this, this portion. No, he, the man obeys. He didn't even know who Jesus was. Jesus comes up, spits in the ground, makes mud, puts it on his eyes, says, go wash. This man doesn't hesitate. What did he have to lose? He goes and he washes 
And he came back and he was seeing. And it's really just the, the beginning of this man's transformation. Down in verse 48, uh, 38, it says, he says this, after a dialogue with Jesus later, he says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This man's transform transformation had only begun in our passage. And so he not only heals the man born blind, but he saves him. And we often think of the greatest miracles as, as the physical ones. But what about the new birth? What about the giving of sight to the, to the spiritually blind? No, the truth is that some people don't think that they were completely blind. They, they, they think that there's something in them that, that God saves them for, something good in them. You know, I've talked to people. Look, why, why did you come to Christ? Well, because, you know, I had a good heart. There was something still in me that, that, that allowed me to choose Christ. But, but this man's spiritual blindness is a picture of the unbeliever's spiritual blindness. I mean, look at these things. This man was, was blind for, from birth, and the unbeliever is spiritually blind from birth. This man has no way to see Jesus physically, and the unbeliever has no way to see Jesus spiritually. I mean, this man was told to go to the pool of Siloam, but unless somebody take him and draw him there, he'll never wash and never be healed. The unbeliever has no way to come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. No, the unbeliever's spiritual blindness is so much like this man's physical blindness that something needs to happen in our hearts as unbelievers. God must change our hearts so that we believe on Him. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 36, and he says this, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why is it veiled? It's because they are perishing. In, the, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of, out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, this is, this is the work of God in the heart of the unbeliever to transform him into a believer. Yes, we, we, we come by faith when he does that. We ascend to faith like, like the blind man. We, we, we come to a place of obedience where we go and we wash and we follow. So we do this because we know that he is good, and, and He is right, and He calls us to, to repent and, and to follow Him. But, but it starts with Him, just like the blind man sitting there on the side of the road. If Jesus doesn't stop with His disciples, the blind man continues to be blind. But Jesus, in His love and His mercy, calls out to the blind man. He comes to the blind man. He anoints the blind man, and the blind man responds to that. And Jesus says in verse, or actually back in chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus says this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of the heart will flow rivers of living water. And that's what happens to men. If you, when we go through the rest of this chapter, what you're going to see is this man continues to glorify God in everything he says. I'm looking forward to the, the next couple of weeks as we go through it because I mean, there's so, so much that has been done in this man. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have to remember that. You have to remember that, that he has done a great work in your life. Next point, though, is the neighbor's confusion. I'll try to run through this. The neighbor's confusion, we see this in verse 8 through 12. Verse 8 says, The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And so there's this confusion with his neighbors. And we have to understand that, that these neighbors, we, we, could, we could look down on them. We could think, how could, 
How could they not understand? Because they've been seeing this man, possibly from birth, as a blind one. I mean, it, it wasn't, you know, this was not a big metropolis. Yes, it was Jerusalem. But this man presumably has been living there his whole life, and they've been seeing him beg day in and day out. And so they've seen this day in and day out. And, and, and so they're having this dialogue. Some said it is he, and others said, no, but he is like him. But I love this. It says, the man, he, kept saying, I am the man. You know, it's like they're, they're having this dialogue, and he's like, hey, I, I'm right here. I can hear you. I, I, I was blind, but I wasn't deaf. And I, and I can hear you, and you're having this dialogue, and, and I am the man. You don't have to ask yourselves this question. You don't have to debate anymore. No, I am the man. And notice this is the first time that the man has spoke. He, I am that. I am that man. And so finally they, they acknowledge him. And so they, in verse 10, so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he's not going to go into a long dissertation about his eyes were open. All he's going to say is this. He, he answered, the man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. That's it. At this point, all their confusion is gone. Nope. No, their, their confusion is... But all he does is he tells them he tells them what he knows. And he, we know that this is a sign that is, that is pointing to Jesus, but it, it, it seems so simple. And, and often, you know, when we're trying to share the gospel with family and friends, you know, I, I think we should be deliberate and truthful and understand the gospel and, and try to get them to completely under this, uh, understand the gospel. But we can often start off like this man. I know. I know what I was before. I know what Christ did, and I know that I'm different now. I mean, it doesn't have to be extremely complex. No, this is the one who, who opened my eyes, that I might see him for who he is and see him for what he has done. You know, for, for us, brothers and sisters, we, you know, we need to share what Christ has done. We, we, need, we need to share the, the hope that we have. I mean, Peter says in 1 Peter Chapter 3, verse 15, he says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for, the, for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's what this man does. His neighbors, are you the man? Yes, I'm the man. What happened to you? The man Jesus, he, he anointed my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and washed. I went, I washed, I came back seeing. It, it seems like in some ways we, we can say those things, and for Jesus it seems so simple, but this is amazing. This man has been blind from birth, and yet now he is, he is seeing. And so they, they say to him in verse 12, where is he? He said, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's kind of funny. Now, how is he supposed to know where Jesus is? He's been blind his whole life. You know, it's interesting. He doesn't even get to enjoy the healing that he's had. I mean, you think that they would be having a, a huge party. Oh, my goodness, this, this man that we've seen here sitting day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year has been healed where is he? No, they don't even, re they don't even rejoice with this man. This is, this is their, their neighbors. They should be excited that, that the blind see, that the lame walk, that the deaf hear, that the Messiah has come. And yet they don't get it and they're not satisfied. And so what they do? They want to go to the Pharisees. We've got to show this to the Pharisees. And it brings us to our final point, the Pharisees' division. We see this in verse 13, it says, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. 
And then John adds this. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. John puts that there. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened the eyes. Three things. It was a Sabbath. He made mud. That's bad. He opened the eyes of the blind man. That's bad too. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I wash and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. I mean, you realize in, you know, in, in a lot of the commentaries I was reading, you know, there's all these rules and, and, and regulations and, and things that they tacked on God's commandments, and, and they became a burden to the people. The Sabbath was to be a day of, of rest and a day of joy, a, a day to celebrate what God had done in their lives. And yet, the Pharisees were we're making it a burden. And what it's doing, it's, it's affecting their, their minds and it's affecting the way they're, they're judging. And they're, and they're judging Christ with not only wrong judgment, but with wrong motives. And what they're doing is they're trying to find fault with Him. Now, healing on the Sabbath, they say, is bad and making clay or kneading on the Sabbath is, is wrong. And it's really sad that these, leader, these leaders do that. And, and rather than rejoicing with this man who has been born blind or has been blind his entire life, what do they want to do? They want to find fault with, with the Savior. And as, you, as we, we go through the rest of this chapter, what, what we're going to see is you see that, that it's really wicked how they have rejected Christ. And it really goes back, remember, the prologue. Some, some come and some believe. And He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe, but we see others. His own, he comes to His own people, His own religious people, and they reject Him. And it's sad. No, and they, they should be rejoicing. You know, R.C. Sproul said this. He said, never mind that the Sabbath was was made for man and, and not man for the Sabbath, Mark 2.27. Never mind that the Lord of the Sabbath declares that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, Mark chapter 3, verse 4. If these people would have been the people of God, they would have been throwing their yarmulkes in the air and praising God for the manifestation of His mercy and the healing of this poor, beset man. Instead, they quibbled over their own technicalities and accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. I mean, it's, it's tragic. The Messiah has come. We know He's the Messiah because He's healing the blind. He's allowing the deaf to hear. He's allowing the lame to walk. We know He is the Messiah. And yet... These men are rejecting him, but not all of them, but not all of them. Verse 16, it says, but others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? How can, who, who are these? One of the things is we read the rest of the chapter, we don't really see who these other are. The, the voice, in this case, the voice of the wicked drowns out all other voices we can presume that there was some sort of dialogue. Some said, how, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? But they, the wicked don't want to hear that. Who, who were these Pharisees who believed? Well, one we know is probably, possibly Nicodemus. Nicodemus seems pretty clearly that he becomes a believer later. But we know that, that what this... What they say is true. How can a man who is a sinner do such things? You know, this is exactly what the, the man says later on in this, in this chapter. Look down at verse 30. He says, The man answered, Why, why this is an amazing thing? He's talking to the Pharisees. Why this is an amazing thing? You do not know where he comes from, and yet... He opened my eyes. And basically what the man is saying is, you're, you're blind. You don't know where he comes from? 
He's the Messiah. He comes, he comes from heaven. Verse 31, we, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. I mean, you see, this, this blind man has been given sight. He knows that, that this man is from God. He knows his healing was from God. Yes, there's a, a division amongst those who, who are believing in Christ and those who are not believing in Christ. And, and some are saying that, that, that Jesus is the, the Sabbath breaker, and others are saying that, that he's the, the sign maker. Jesus, brothers and sisters, divides people. And this really brings me to my concluding thought. Each of us has to make up our minds on who we're going to follow. My prayer is that, that you would follow Jesus, that you would obey Jesus, that you would go and, and be washed by Jesus, that you might be given sight to see truly who Jesus is and what He has done for you. And this account gives us an amazing picture of, of that process. Yes, we were blind. We couldn't see Christ, but now if you're in Christ, you see Him as He truly is. And like this man, it is my hope and prayer that we would continue to grow in our understanding of who Christ is. And just as this man said, yes, I believe, and he worshiped Him, that we would worship Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before You, and Lord, we thank You for Your Word that gives us hope that you will continue to do a work in the lives of unbelievers, that you would give sight to the spiritually blind and to the physically blind, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this man and his testimony of, of your goodness to him. And Lord, we thank you for your son who is willing to, to pay the ultimate cost that we might have spiritual life and spiritual sight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.